Welcome to Prestigious Minds, where we explore the life and times of some of history's most influential people, such as inventors, businessmen, and entrepreneurs. All of these individuals have had a lasting impact on the world that we live in today. I'm your host, Jeremiah, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rob, and in this series, we discuss Andrew Carnegie. Also, we post once a week on Tuesdays. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at PMindsPod. Now let's jump into this series, Andrew Carnegie. Hello, I'm Jeremiah, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob. To begin our series over Andrew Carnegie. How's it doing? How's it going, Rob? Doing pretty good. And you pronounce that Carnegie or Carnegie? Carnegie. Because it is a Scottish last name. And that is how they pronounce it in Scotland. Mm. Well, we're in North Carolina. And we call it Carnegie. It's Carnegie. Okay, so this is going to be rather confusing if we pronounce it two different ways. Right. So I say we use Andrew Carnegie because that's that's you know common speech. I would think most people know Andrew Carnegie, Carnegie Hall, not Carnegie Hall. True, but that doesn't make it right. Well, just because a bunch of people mispronounce his libraries and. Music called doesn't mean that we should mispronounce his last name when we're literally doing a biography type episode over him. Right. So I think that'll kind of get us into the um, feeling of where we're going towards this. So he has a few different buildings and institutions named after him. So he must be pretty famous. Yeah, he's actually probably... The second or third name that you would think of when you think of the classic Gilded Age, Robber Barons, Rags to Riches story persons that we will also be talking about here. Obviously, we just finished covering Rockefeller, which was a native here in the U.S. from Ohio, whereas Carnegie is going to be the first person we talk about that immigrated to the U.S. as a young boy. So there's going to be a little difference in how we can relate to him because we, of course, don't know. Well, it's much older than Rockefeller and his story is in um, his history in Scotland. We really don't know in his family as well. So there's going to be a little difference between him and Rockefeller, but we'll try to tie into some um, maybe parallels, maybe some contrasts, so just some references. Not to focus too much, but just to kind of... It, Set some pace. Yeah, so to begin this, we'll start at Andrew's birthplace of Dunfermline, Scotland. And he was born in 1835 to a Margaret and Will Carnegie. Will, his father, was a hand weaver. And he actually did pretty well until the Industrial Revolution with modern machinery and steam-powered machines, put many artisan weavers out of business like they did him. And thanks to his father's pride, he couldn't ever seem to really find another job doing anything else. If he did, he ended up losing that job because 
he didn't want to do it. And historically, his family has always passed down the trade of being weavers. And so this was something that he was fairly good at. And before the steam looms came along and put him out of business, they did pretty well. And then they went back into poverty because they didn't have work. His mother actually became the breadwinner because she did odd and end jobs and was also like a shoe repair person at a local shop to help keep food on the table. And in 1848, they were living a pretty rough life. They couldn't find work. It only seemed to get worse and worse. Therefore, Carnegie's mother, along with her husband, Will, and Carnegie's little brother, Tom, they immigrated to the U.S. And a lot of the local people that they knew and family did not want them to move, but they took what little they had and they moved because she had family outside of Pittsburgh in Allegheny City. So, kind of similar to Rockefeller, his um, Carnegie's dad really wasn't a, uh, I guess you'd say, the best example of someone who would you would want raising your kid, or you know, like a, you wouldn't want as a father figure, definitely. Yeah, so a lot of accounts have him very complacent with finding another job. He's very classic of the person who was a skilled craftsman, knew his craft well, had been handed down through generations, and then the modern industry and modern technology you could never really fully adapt to. Whether he wanted to or chose not to, I'm not really sure, but... This led to hard times, and when they moved to Pittsburgh, to Allegheny City, and they actually lived in a slum part of town because they didn't have any money, and this led to Andrew going and getting a job as a little boy, as a bobbin boy, and I think he worked there for several months, and then got an offer to work in the boiler room of the thread, of the thread factory help helping like meter the boiler and he got a raise of 15 cents per week to make it i believe a dollar 20 a week real money well that is um seems insignificant but i guess for the time it's pretty pretty good for how old was he 12 years old yeah yeah, he's 12, 13 years old. And actually, correction, because I'm not perfect, he was making $1.20 per week. And then whenever he took the job tending uh, the steam boiler, he was getting paid $2 a week. Oh, wow. Oh, that is a significant raise then. So from, that's an easy raise. It's pretty good. Yep. And he was very diligent. He impressed his supervisor with his penmanship because he wrote really well. That he actually ended up becoming a clerk underneath him to write, you know, messages and stuff down and send them there forth. That was something that Carnegie actually prided himself on was education. So he was in school. I think he didn't even start school in Scotland until he was eight years old. Then by the time that they moved, 1847, he got a job in 1848. He stopped going to school. 
and became a full-time worker to help put food on the table and pay the bills. Something that his family did take seriously, though, was learning, so he always tried to read and learn. He used local libraries to do this. Um, there's actually a point, we're going to jump out of the storyline, but there was actually a moment where he went to a local library that was open to um, school children, and one day they revoked his access to it because he was considered a working child, not a school-going child, and so he ended up actually writing an anonymous letter talking about how he believed the original donors of the library wished all children to access the library, not just those that were going for a formal education, and sent it to a local newspaper that published it and kind of put that public pressure on the library to open it up for all children, not just those going to school. Wow, can you imagine? Like that's that's kind of a a harsh thing. Like, oh, you're a kid, but oh, you have to feed your family, so you can't learn. Well, I think it also you really have to think about how they saw things. So, I didn't grow up back then, so I don't know. I'm not a real big history buff on the child labor back then, but I think the way they saw it was you were a working person. And I don't think they separated children from adults very much, except for they can fit into places adults cannot. They are cheaper. They're somewhat more disposable in a way, I guess. I mean, I don't want to attribute that to people that hire kids, but it was the thing to do. And, you know, we're not going to get into the ethics of whether it's right or wrong to force children to work, which um, in a lot of these conditions, it was insanely unethical for adults to work there. So, but I guess it comes with the times to some degree. I mean, everything was very primitive when it was first invented. Well, I guess their thought was, you know, back in the um, agrarian days, you had kids to help out. And if one died, you just got another one. So maybe that's what they thought. Which is terrible. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go too far to 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 demonize the people, but regardless, that is how Andrew got started as a laborer in the back in the eighteen forties, and so he progressed in his work. His uncle actually heard at a local tavern about how the local telegraph office needed a messenger boy. And what a messenger boy does, if if you don't know from the title, is they transfer messages between the telegraph office and the person that they were meant meant for. So if a local business office needs reports from New York City, they send the telegraph, telegraph office receives it, they decode it, they send they give the message to the messenger boy and he takes it, drops it off to whoever and then he'll also take, come back with a message if needed. So you had these kind of uh, messaging offices and they would receive messages for whoever and they would deliver them to like, it was almost like a package type thing. Like you would deliver a package or like you would, or you deliver a message like you would a package. Yes. Except for, I guess this was somewhat instantaneous versus sending a letter. So this was right. used for, I don't know. I mean, this was kind of early on of the telegraph. I don't know if this was a primary source for everyone to communicate. I would imagine this was specific for commercial 
type endeavors where information need to be known as soon as possible. Commercial um, and government use, yeah. And th- this is also how the stock market worked for the longest time until, you know, electricity came along and kind of made that a little bit easier. And he actually ended up getting this job as a messenger boy and was earning $2.50 per week. Another raise, wow. And this is in 1849. So in three years, the age of 12, he went from earning 120 per week to 250 per week in just a short period of time. Well, that's pretty in, uh, impressive. I mean, I think the exchange rate uh, from then to now is like 32 bucks or so, but um, that's something. Yeah, and, and something that it's hard to account for due to inflation, but cost of goods were such a percentage less compared to the dollar. So it's it's a little bit more convoluted to really decipher how much that actually was. I mean, it wasn't a lot. Like, you're still in poverty back then, as you can imagine, but it's a whole lot more than $1.20 per week. I mean, you you over doubled your salary within a year. That's pretty good. And when he got this job, so Andrew is a very detailed person. We remember talking about how Rockefeller was really good with numbers and remembering things. Well, we were starting to see that pattern in Carnegie as well. Well, Carnegie. There's my uh, American pronunciation coming out. He memorized all the street names and the men who he had to take messages to. So he knew their address by heart. He knew the street names by heart. And he did this and became known as one of the fastest people to deliver a telegraph message. This gave him a little bit more trust among his peers and even his supervisors. And he was able to help with more urgent messages, stuff that really needed to get delivered no matter what. And so he took his skill of listening and paying attention and learning and applied that to the telegraph machine where he became so good that he's probably one of the first people in the U S who could decipher a Morse code message by ear alone. So how it worked was whenever the telegraph message would come in, it would tap out on a magnetic strip and then that would be used to decode the message. And then they would transcribe the message and send it on. Carnegie could listen to those taps coming in and transcribe the message himself, which made him even better and faster. And he actually, for the most part was pretty accurate, but there, there is rumors and and moments where, in this, I think he was about 16 years old, where when the telegraph message would break down, you know, signal would break down and he wouldn't be able to get all the words. It very frustrated him because it slowed him down. And sometimes he would infer what he thought the message would say. So I'm sure there was plenty of news that maybe just had imaginative parts to them that came around in Pittsburgh at the time. But because he was able to do this, he ended up getting a position as a telegraph operator for another branch and began making $20 per month. Well, so he almost got up, went from $2.50 to about five bucks a week. It's pretty impressive. He's getting pretty good at doubling his money as he goes along. Yeah. I mean, this is a time when like, um, you know, a kilogram of beef was, I think it was like 20 cents. So it's like forty. Four cents a pound. 
just for reference, what things cost. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty good. And I want to take a quick break to thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. I hope that you are enjoying it. Also, I would like to ask if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or anywhere you listen, and let us know what you think of the show and maybe any future topics or people that you would like us to cover here. Also, don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at pminespod, where you'll also get a visual representation, not just the audio, of what we talk about here. Now back to the show. He did this for a few years, became better at it, and ended up taking a similar job for the Pennsylvania Railroad, and he impressed the superintendent so much, Thomas Scott, that he actually became the personal telegrapher and assistant to Thomas Scott. And this matters because Thomas Scott was pretty high up. He was the superintendent of Pennsylvania Railroad's Western Division. This paid Andrew $35 per month, and this is 1853. Remember how he learned all the street names and and the business people he had to take messages to. Well, now he's in the railroad business. And you're in the 1850s, and what we know from history is the railroad in America was some of the first major tycoons and business moguls to come along, was like people who ran the railroads. Vanderbilt is one of those people. So he took that very detailed approach and learned all the ins and outs they could about the railroad industry and actually had a pretty good mentor in Thomas Scott. And Thomas Scott, I think, remained his mentor throughout his life until Thomas Scott's death. And he also, Andrew Carnegie, also made small innovations like making the suggestion to keep the telegraph open, telegraph office open 24 hours a day mainly because if there was a fire for like railroad cars or something like that or accidents or they need to clear the tracks, like you're coordinating trains and this is a time where train wrecks happen fairly often, you know, way more than you would think. And so this was a way to help clear the tracks, uh, allow information to be carried along even during storms. And so there's just little things like this that he tried to improve upon. Wow, sounds like he was a pretty industrious fellow, especially in his youth. So he went from like just becoming a bobbin boy to um, the assistant of someone who was major up in the railroad system. That's pretty nice. That's pretty neat. Um, and his salary, of course, was compensated um, accordingly. So um, I'm guessing he was still living with his parents at this time and helping out with the bills. Yeah, he was. He was still living in in the house with his parents. Um, his father continued to, to try to find work as a weaver. He made tablecloths, his own tablecloths, and tried to peddle them. Um, he wasn't super successful with it. His mother still was the primary breadwinner at this time. And you end up seeing, and this, this is a story that I heard whenever I was doing my research over Carnegie, was... This was once Andrew was on a business trip on a, on a paddle on a steam paddle boat, and he was staying in the estate room, and his father was sleeping on the deck with his tablecloths. 
And so you really have a strong contrast of a young, industrious man taking all the advantages that America has to offer to, you know, a foreign-born immigrant in the mid-1800s, in the middle, uh, on the the cusp of the industrious future that steam has brought to everybody. And then you have his father who actually couldn't cope with the change of scenery and the progression that had happened throughout his industry. And what we ended up happening, what we end up seeing happening is uh, his father, Will, ends up dying at 51, an early death in 1855. Carnegie is only 20 years old. Wow. <clears throat> that's pretty, um, that's pretty sad. I mean, imagine making your living doing something and then a whole another industry just takes over and you known something your whole life and and I know I did a little bit of research and his um his father back in the uh, back in Europe was a an activist kind of uh, being an activist against the um industrialization or certain aspects of industrialization so he really didn't like the uh um how things were going in the steam power industry at the time yeah, I believe he also had an uncle back in Scotland that was very seen as a like a political speaker and he he kind of spoke and raved against the industrial uh happenings and even you know government parliament type stuff going on back then as well. And so this kind of rhetoric also put I wouldn't say put a black eye on the Carnegie family, but in a way it kind of did. And this was something that little Andrew actually experienced because there was a historic castle from Queen Mary um, or Queen of Scots, Mary. It was one of her castles and the owners of it would open it, I think, for one day a year or one week for a year for all the children to kind of come out and families to see the property. But anyone related to his uncle was barred from ever going. So even as a kid, he wasn't allowed to go. I think this kind of struck a chord with him, and we see as he grows up, he becomes a pretty starch abolitionist of slavery, um, definitely believes all men were created equal, holistically buys into that, and uh, actually becomes a supporter of Abraham Lincoln. So if he was a um, supporter of Abraham Lincoln, I mean, he was in Philadelphia at the time, so I guess that was more common, but... I know there, even in the North, there was some pushback against Abraham Lincoln at the time and even abolition, but I mean, it was a good place for him to be for that movement. And, um, I guess he kind of felt being the other in this country coming from Scotland. And I know there was a a large migration of people from that area at the time. So he probably felt a little ostracized and, you know, people of, uh, African descent were probably, um, in his mind more than others. So that's good. I mean, you know, he's thought against the, he went against the grain and kind of supported someone who was out of left field and want to make changes. So that's good for him. Yeah. And jumping back to the modern time that we're currently in, which is the mid 1850s. So he's working as the personal assistant to Thomas Scott. And 
one of he got his first lesson in capitalism from Thomas Scott, and that was how to buy stock in a company and make money from it. And what he did was he gave him a few tips on how to do this. He said, I'm never going to buy stock in a company that I don't know about. And that is reference to in what we would call insider trading today. It wasn't illegal back then. What he ended up doing for Carnegie, Carnegie was he forwarded him a $600 loan to buy Adam Express stock, which I believe was had something to do with the railroad or it was a shipping company. After the first month of investment, he ended up receiving a $10 dividend check. This was when Carnegie discovered the goose that laid the golden egg, as he put it himself. So you're telling me that his boss gave him a $600, $600 loan to invest, which was a little bit more than uh, a common laborer's um, salary at the time. They, I think they made like a hundred or $230 a year. So that's pretty significant. Yeah, and, and you bring that up. What makes that even more fascinating is the fact that, as you just said, Carnegie didn't have the collateral to put up for this loan. So he actually went to his mother, and his mother put up their house, which was their only possession that was worth anything, as collateral for this loan, and it paid off. He ended up making money from it. Wow. So $10 a... Oh, I mean, getting a $10 check, I don't know if that's uh, that quarterly, I guess. Yeah, who knows? But that's pretty uh, significant. I mean, it, it's a week's worth of work for most people back then. Yeah, and this gave him a sense of what investing was. Obviously, he didn't know anything about it. And Scott kind of gave him the ins and outs of invest, as I mentioned earlier, investing companies that you know of what they're doing, what their business needs are going to be, and buy into them before the news is announced. I don't think this is the specific words that Scott gave him, but that's what he did. Later on, so the George Pullman invented the sleeping car a little bit before this, and then a different sleeping car company, I think that was local, called Woodruff Sleeping Car Company, was, I think, set to start producing cars for the Pennsylvania Railroad. And Carnegie took a loan of $217.50 from a local bank to invest in the car company, the swimming car company. And after two years, he already started to see a return of about $5,000 annually, which was more than three times his salary from the railroad. Wow. That is impressive. Talking about like two hundred fifty bucks to five thousand—that's a good investment today. Can you imagine how your life would turn around with that much money? This is where Carnegie started making his money, and this is, I think, a point of contrast that I would like to point out. And when we talked about Rockefeller, he reinvest—he reinvested, learned how to do something. He exploited that, worked his way up to make decent money in what he was doing. And he didn't go speculate in stocks or buy ownership in a company. He did enter in partnerships, put up collateral for that. 
And that's kind of how Rockefeller made his money and, and came up in the oil industry, as we had talked about previous episodes. And if you haven't, you should go check those out. Carnegie, however, started earning real money when he began investing and speculating in stocks. Now, I liked, I, I don't like seeing speculating, but because he knew that it was going to be successful since he had inside information, it wasn't a gamble. And I, I say that because Carnegie himself was very strong on this point, especially as we get into the steel industry later on, which is what he is most known for. He was very opposed to gambling on hopes and dreams of other companies to make money, which is kind of what he saw stock investments of people who didn't properly have information on the company they were investing in, i.e. inside information. And I just want to point out, um, you said it was $5,000, right? Yes. Today, that's $187,000. That is a good yearly salary. I think so. That's I think that's can extremely you, well. Can you imagine going from making, oh, let's see, well, I mean, if you made $250,000, or sorry, if you made $200 a year, that is like $10,000 today. That's quite the change. Yeah. In only a few years. That's insane. Like we're looking at a 10-year span here. So he's in his mid-20s at this point. And he actually becomes superintendent. So his his mentor moves up in the Pennsylvania railroad to become a manager and Carnegie is promoted to the superintendent of his old mentor's position, which puts him in charge of his own department. He has a yearly salary of $1,500. So there's the salary and they finally have the money, him and his mother to move to more of an upscale suburb of Homewood. So you have to understand that Carnegie has pretty much grown up in the slums his entire life, and now they're finally starting to move up in the world. Wow. So uh, just for reference, $1,500 a uh, you said $1,500 a year? That's like uh, fifty, $56,000, $57,000 today. So that's not a bad salary. No. But I think... Uh, and uh, So he was earning the... Re, the returns on of his investment as well as earning his railroad salary. Well, I mean, the guy knew how to knew how to work and knew how to work it. He was very good and he learned when he got into this position that he needed to become I guess you would call it a socialite, but a very social person to rub elbows with the right people to get the right information to know how to scale his business later on, but also his own investments of time and energy and even financials. So just in the short time, like eight years moving from Scotland to, well, I guess not moving to Scotland, but 12 years, you know, him starting working to his twenties. That's it. I mean, he, he started to actually thrive pretty well here in America. I mean, no telling. If they would have stayed in Scotland, he may have done all right. But can you imagine, like, the difference it would be? There was definitely 
a lot more opportunity for work in a lot more different industries and a burgeoning economy that was beginning to bust at the seams and the railroads allowing travel to happen a lot more across the U.S. The railroads are trying to expand out west, which actually is a pretty major problem that they can't quite solve until steel comes along in mass production. I would say that America, as they said back then, was the land of opportunity, and there's a reason why a lot of people immigrate. There's a lot of reason a lot. That's the reason why a lot of people move here today. Right. So I think this is a good time to uh, to kind of end this episode, episode one of Andrew Carnegie or Andrew Carnegie. And next time we're going to talk about how he kind of became the industrialite that we know him today. And uh, how he was making his moves in the industry. So, Jeremiah, would you like to end this one for us? Yes, and one last word. I guess somewhat of a primer to the next episode is we will beginning, we'll be beginning, if I can learn how to speak, around the Civil War. Now... I'm not going to dive into and explain it, but if we take a flashback to how Rockefeller made his money during the Civil War, Andrew Carnegie was somewhat similar, but not. And specifically because he played more of an active role in the Civil War. But you'll have to wait to find out what that is. So this has been Prestigious Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. That concludes today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, let us know how we can improve by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at PMindsPod. And go give us a follow over there where we discuss and share photographs, videos, and anything visual related to the podcast. And thank you for listening to Prestigious Minds. <laughs>